Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode seven of The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. So this is one of two podcasts for the week. Now, they're a little bit shorter, so don't worry, but make sure you're listening to both of them. And this one, episode seven, is actually a guest lecture from Dr. Shauna Meehan, and she's going to talk to you about constitutions and their different characteristics and the different ways that they're made up and organized. So make sure you're really paying attention to this. Um, before that, a couple things that I wanted to comment about regarding the class. Um, discussion forums to, for uh, Unit 2 were so good. I mean, so thoughtful, so engaging. Um, it was really awesome to just read the level of depth that a lot of the conversations went into. Um, and, you know, we're talking about Landis, Frank, and then, you know, saying, oh, what other kinds of perspectives can we bring into this? But just the way that you you dissected these different arguments and were engaging and respectful with your fellow classmates um, it was really awesome to see, and I can tell that people are really thinking about this stuff. It's, you know, obviously there's going to be some that are just, oh, I'm going to do it and get the points and whatever. But for the most part, people are really engaging, and it's just, it's great to see the level of critical thinking that's actually going on. And I've also posted an article by Justin Yifu Lin, and this offers more of a Chinese perspective on, uh, on what was going on in the Great Divergence. And then there's also a book by Ben Wong, for those of you that are interested in looking at the Great Divergence in more depth. And then uh, Pomerantz, he also wrote the book called The Great Divergence, uh, which would be another resource to check out if you're really interested in this. Um, so the grades for Class Section 2 writing assignment, they will be posted no later than Sunday night. And these papers were pretty good. I mean, most people did some really, really good work. The average was just under 80%. And the only thing I, I can really say is make sure you're answering all parts of the question. There were many people that answered the first part, but then didn't answer the second part. And people who might have been on track to get maybe a, a B or an A ended up getting knocked down because they only did half the assignment. Okay, so just make sure you're reading the full question and that you're answering all parts of the questions moving forward. Okay, and if you have questions about what these writing assignments are asking or what exactly you need to do, please contact me, all right? Don't wait until it's too late or it's the night that it's due to get a hold of me, all right? So make sure to, to ask those questions because... You know, if you're not asking questions, then I kind of assume that things are, are going okay and you're understanding exactly what needs to be asked. All right, another thing is to make sure you're downloading and utilizing the outlines for the podcast. So for each podcast on Canvas, if you click on it in the module, it will take you and give you the links to YouTube and, and iTunes and things like that. But it also has the outline, okay? Um, and I think these are super valuable. I mean, when I do the podcast, those are my actual notes that I'm going off of when I record them, okay? And a podcast like this one with Dr. Shauna Meehan, these are the notes I would take if I was taking notes on her guest lecture, okay? So you're, you're getting what, I'm, what either I would take or what I'm looking at when I record these. All right, again, I, I just think that they're really helpful, and if you haven't been using them, please take a look. Um, because they, I, I do think they add value. 
So, on to episode seven here. This is a guest lecture from Dr. Shauna Meehan about constitutions. And I would say please pay attention in particular to how our conversation speaks to the writing assignment for unit three, because it's going to be one of the things that you're going to directly answer. And if you haven't peeked ahead to take a look at the the uh, writing assignment. It's actually a pretty cool assignment um, where you get to design a constitution for for a divided society. So take a look at that, and if it's if it's interesting, then you know pull the trigger on this. Don't wait for a unit four. Um, and and Dr. Shauna Meehan in this, she lays out a lot of really important concepts and a lot of really important stuff related to the unit three writing assignment. So just pay extra attention to that. And without further ado, here is Dr. Shanamian talking about constitutions. For a lecture this session, we will be looking at constitutions. What are constitutions? How are they designed? How does constitutional design affect the politics, economics, and social life of the state? In other words, our learning objectives for this lesson are to understand how political scientists view constitutions and types of constitutional design, to understand key distinctions between different types of constitutional polities, and to learn major theories about why different types of constitutions might impact different political, economic, and social outcomes. First, we will cover some of the most common ways in which constitutions vary, whether they are rigid or more easily altered, the level and type of separation of powers, etc. Then we will specifically examine some theories on the effects of a federal constitution. What effect do federal constitutions have on state stability, on the economy? Do they do a better job at protecting civil rights? So starting with the basic question, what are constitutions? Constitutions are the foundational charters and fundamental laws of a state. This is where you will find the basic structure of the state laid out. So a constitution will tell you what the basic institutions of government are and what their role is. In the United States, for example, the Constitution is where it is spelled out that our state structure includes an executive, a legislature, and a judiciary. It also explains the different role or powers of those institutions and who has ultimate authority in the case of a dispute over power. Constitutions are usually written at some sort of formal convention where a group of individuals hammer out all the rules of the new regime. This can happen at the founding of a country, like in the U.S., or whenever a new regime is established, like in South Africa, after the fall of apartheid. Constitutions are considered the ultimate social contract in which the people confer power onto the political institutions of the state in exchange for law and order. Importantly, constitutions don't just tell us what the state and institutions can do, but they also limit the state's power. Oftentimes, constitutions also specify certain rights and liberties of the people of the state. While these are not always enforced in every state, they are usually written in the constitution anyway. Finally, constitutions are usually relatively short. 
They are intended to lay out the most basic and fundamental rules of society, but usually leave the task of making specific laws to an institution of the state, usually the legislature in democratic states or the executive in authoritarian regimes. Constitutional design refers to the specific features of the Constitution that shape the different political institutions of the state and their powers. So most states have a constitution that defines the basic structures of the state, but the specific design and features of those constitutions varies from state to state. There are two key questions in the process of constitutional design that are both related to the idea of separation of powers. First, a constitution should lay out how power is shared between levels of government, meaning are there different levels of organization in the state, and if so, how do they divvy up and or share certain powers? So, for example, in the United States, our Constitution specifically lays out the powers of the national government and leaves all other powers not specified in the Constitution to the states. Similarly, the Constitution of the United Kingdom specifies what powers are the specific purview of the national government in Westminster and what are the purview of the devolved governments of Scotland and Northern Ireland. We also see this addressed in state constitutions in the U.S. The Oregon Constitution, for example, lays out which powers the state government has and which are the purview of city governments. It is important to note that not all states have federal constitutions, meaning that there is only one central government rather than power shared at multiple levels. The second question is about how power is divided between branches of government at the same level. So what powers are given to the executive, legislature, and judiciary? Again, the Constitution of the United States specifies the power of the executive, the legislature, and the judicial branches of government, but only for the national level. The state constitution of Oregon specifies the separation of powers between the state executive, the state legislature, and the state judiciary. It is important to note here that not all states have three distinct branches of government, nor are they always considered co-equal in their powers. Some states do not have a judiciary or judicial review of laws. Some states have strong executives, while others are weak. How these institutions are structured is decided through constitutional design. Put a more visual way, if that works for you, constitutions determine how and if power is divided vertically between different levels of government and horizontally between branches of government. So now let's talk about some of the important ways constitutions can be designed. They can be either relatively easy or extremely difficult to change, what we'll call flexible or rigid. They can have separation of powers horizontally between branches of government. They can have separation of powers or not vertically between levels of government. And they can vary in structure based on whether they are written for an authoritarian or democratic regime. Flexible constitutions are relatively easily changed. The best example of this is the UK Constitution. In the United Kingdom, the legislature is considered sovereign. In essence, what this means is that any law passed by the legislature, parliament, is by definition constitutional. The upside to a flexible constitution is that laws and rules of the state can be updated as needed in reaction to the needs of the day. 
So thinking about my personal favorite example of Northern Ireland, after the end of their ethnic civil conflict called the Troubles, the UK government passed several laws altering the specific relationship between Northern Ireland and the larger United Kingdom. They were able to quickly set up the new local legislature in Northern Ireland and devolve other important powers like policing to the Northern Irish government. The downside to flexible constitutions is that they can be changed on a whim and are so and so are prone to large swings in the rules and regulations of the state based on who is in power. To some extent, you have, we have seen some of this in the UK, where the party in power tends to make several large sweeping changes to the laws of the state when they are elected. Other constitutions are incredibly difficult to alter. The Constitution of the United States is extremely rigid and requires all kinds of hurdles to change, including supermajority votes in both the House and the Senate and a supermajority of state legislatures to approval before they can be adopted. This is why there have been so few alterations in the U.S. Constitution in its nearly 250-year history. The advantages and disadvantages of rigid constitutions are the opposite of those for flexible constitutions. Namely, the difficulty in changing the constitution means that the basic rules and regulations of the state are always pretty constant, and therefore life is very predictable for citizens. On the other hand, rigid constitutions have a hard time adjusting to reflect changes in the basic mores of the citizens of the country. Judicial review, or the ability for an ultimate or supreme court to judge the constitutionality of laws or actions, is something that, constitution, that some constitutions have, but not others. Keeping with our U.S. versus the U.K. example, the United States has a judicial system that is charged with determining the constitutionality of actions of the executive branch and the legislative branch. But as mentioned before, there is no judicial review in the United Kingdom. That is, any law passed by Parliament is, by definition, constitutional. This is also known as parliamentary sovereignty, as we mentioned before. This does not mean that the UK has no judges or court system, but they are not charged with reviewing the constitutionality of government actions. The exceptions for the UK noted on the slide here have to do with the devolution of powers to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Because of the precariousness of those specific arrangements, one of the agreements made between the central government of the United Kingdom and those devolved governments was that there would be a special court to ensure that the basic tenets of those devolved agreements could not be changed. You could understand why this would be appealing and maybe even necessary in the negotiation for these agreements. If you are Scottish, for example, and you go through the difficult and complicated negotiations to set up your own devolved government, you would want some sort of guarantee that the next prime minister to take over would not simply immediately get rid of your agreement. However, for the most part, with these few exceptions, the UK does not have judiciary review. Another difference in the constitutions is whether they are federal or unitary. Federal systems establish different levels of government and divide the powers of government between those levels. In other words, there is a central government, but also some form of semi-autonomous sub-national governments within the state. These are usually based on geographic divisions, like the individual states in the United States or provinces in Canada. This kind of system is particularly appealing in places that are both geographically large, again, Canada and the U.S., have large populations like India or Brazil, 
or have diverse historical and cultural groups that seek some level of autonomy and protection, like Germany. Importantly, as the textbook points out, for a system to be truly federal, it must not just have these subnational governments, but they must also have some powers that are autonomous from the national government, meaning that the national government cannot infringe on the subnational government's right to create and enforce a specific subset of laws. Usually, this is enshrined in the Constitution. So, for example, China has provinces and provincial governments, but those governments can be overruled at any time by the national government. This is not true autonomy. Unitary governments have one centralized government that is the ultimate authority in the state. As mentioned on the previous slide, there may be some provincial or other kind of subnational government organization in a unitary state, but the national government maintains ultimate power and authority over all laws. This can be kind of confusing, so let's think about a made-up example. The country of Apple has several subnational governments. We'll call them Gala, Granny Smith, and Red Delicious. If Apple is a unitary state, they might allow the subnational governments to, say, create their own criminal laws. However, Granny Smith decides to make it a crime to eat oranges. The national Apple government doesn't like this law, and while it doesn't violate any specific constitutional provision, the national government decides to overrule the government of Granny Smith and repeal the anti-orange law. This is, of course, a silly example, but hopefully it helps you to understand the ability for subnational governments to make laws is not enough to, to be considered a federal system. Those subnational governments must also have some constitutionally protected powers that cannot be overruled by the national government in order to be truly federal. Unitary governments are common in geographically small states with smaller populations. They also tend to arise in states that are ethnically, religiously, and or culturally homogeneous. This makes sense given that a single unitary government is likely to do a good job of representing all the people's interests when there are relatively few people to represent and they have relatively similar interests. Constitutions also vary based on whether they are built for democratic or authoritarian regimes. We mostly associate constitutionalism with democracy, in large part because the definition of constitutionalism is the limitation of government through a constitution. We also traditionally think of democracies that have emphasized the importance of crafting and writing a con constitution. Again, the U.S. is a common example. But authoritarian regimes also often write constitutions. There can be several reasons for this. First, the international norm of having a constitution has made it appealing to authoritarian regimes to at least write one for international legitimacy purposes. It also may be used to help justify in writing the specific ide ideology or person that the country commits to following. However, the presence of a constitution does not mean that it is followed. Many authoritarian countries may suspend all or some of the constitution. They may simply ignore the Constitution and rule as they see fit. Or there may be a genuine desire to transition to democracy, and the Constitution is written more as an aspirational document, but it's not yet fully enacted. The important thing to note here is that while many think of constitutions as inherently democratic, we find documents that can only be described as constitutions in authoritarian regimes as well. 
Therefore, we are required to dig deeper into how and if the Constitution is implemented in a state before we can judge the state as democratic or authoritarian based simply on the presence of a Constitution. In this part of the lecture, we will look more closely at some of the arguments surrounding federalism and judicial review. Specifically, we will look at arguments about how federalism affects social stability, how federalism affects democratic rights, how federalism affects the economy, and how judicial review affects democracy. Many scholars argue that federalism can help bring social stability to deeply divided communities. That is, if the people of a nation are divided politically, ethnically, religiously, etc., then establish, establishing sub-national governments with some level of autonomy in some forms of decision-making may give more people a stake in the government and therefore increase social stability. Imagine a state where there are two large ethnic groups, one with 60% of the population and one with 40%. In a unitary system, the larger would always dominate, will always be able to set the rules of the game, and may even be tempted to create rules that favor their own group and or specifically disadvantage the smaller group. In a federal system, however, the smaller group might have more say over the laws in their territory, at least, or have the ability to appeal to their religious traditions to solve certain disputes, for example. This, it is argued by some, will lead to fewer tensions between groups because everyone is able to set their own rules to an extent. On the other hand, some argue that federal systems may serve to deeper divide groups in society where we should be trying to eliminate or lessen the strength of the divisions that do exist. Instead of giving in to the idea that those tensions or divisions are natural and will never go away, we should be designing political systems that work to lessen the salience of those divides and build relationships between disparate groups. It's argued that if we deepen these divides through federalism, we also increase the likelihood of secessionist movements and civil wars. You can imagine from our same example from the previous slide, if the smaller ethnic group in our society gets a taste of government and finds that they are still not getting as much as they want from the central government, they may decide they would be better off ruling themselves in their own separate state, separate from the larger group. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. We aren't here to make normative judgments about the world, as we will recall from our first lecture. But if we are interested in the outcome of social stability, then this argument would say that federalism is bad for stability because it could lead to deeper tensions or conflict. On the question of whether federalism is good for democratic rights, it should not surprise you that there is also disagreement among scholars. Some scholars argue that federalism may help to better protect democratic rights by incorporating the needs of multiple communities through their institutionalized input. It also affects different parts of a country to have different laws based on the ideals and beliefs of the people in those regions. In a perfectly religiously divided society, for example, you can imagine that an Islamic region might require women to cover their heads, whereas a Christian region might require people to wear a cross, and a Jewish region might require that men wear prayer shawls. In this way, each group is subject to its own religious rules, and no one is required to be the subject to the rules of a different religion. 
In a less charged example, the citizens of one province might value education and publicly provided health care, and so choose to pay higher taxes to ensure that these are provided to everyone in the province at low or no cost. A different province might instead place a higher value on independence, so choose to have much lower taxes and allowing individuals to, who have the funds to pay for the private services that they value most. This fits with the ideals of democracy, that the people are the ultimate source of power and so get the right to choose the laws and policies that are best for them. Other scholars argue, however, that it is distinctly anti-democratic that the rights and liberties of one, one has would vary on which region of a country a person lives in. Shouldn't all the basic rights and liberties laid out in a constitution apply equally to all people in a country? And isn't it more democratic to ensure that the protections of those rights are interpreted exactly the same way across the country? Using the highly charged example from the book, many would argue that having different laws surrounding abortion in different states means that women who are pregnant have very different rights and protections depending on where they are in the country. This violates the democratic principle of equal protection or that all people in the country should be equally protected under the Constitution. Again, this is not to say that any particular law or policy is bad, but right now we're trying to ask ourselves how federalism affects democratic rights. Does it promote rights? Does it promote inequality? Or does it do both? So is federalism good for the economy? Some people argue yes. This group of scholars promotes the idea that healthy competition promotes innovation and creative thinking. These scholars tend to look at federated systems as their own economic markets promoting competition. So if states have to compete with one another for business, then they will adjust their policies and create new and innovative incentives to induce companies to come to their states. So if I want to start a small business and I look at the rules and regulations surrounding businesses in Oregon versus Washington, for example, I might decide that Washington's laws will make it easier for me to succeed and choose to locate my business there. However, Oregon might notice this trend of businesses like mine moving to Washington and so alter its laws to either look like Washington's or create different incentives for businesses to come to Oregon. This kind of competition, it is argued, is good for the economy and will ultimately lead to economic growth and better efficiency in the system i.e. eventually you won't have to physically move your business because the competitive nature of states will make sure that where you are is a good place to do business. On the other hand, some argue that this will hurt economic stability. If states become irresponsible in their desire to draw in business, they may overspend and require assistance from the central government to recover. Remembering that in a federal system, the state or provincial governments all also have representatives at the central government level that can help to advocate for assistance when states overspend, for example. Also, some argue that federalism can lead to an inefficient allocation of resources if, like in the United States, small and rural states have just as much power in the Senate as large and urban states. These smaller states may leverage this power to achieve disproportionately large allocation of resources to their states, leading to economic depression in other states. As with all the issues of federalism we've discussed so far, comparative political scientists disagree on what 
the effects of con- federal constitutions have on economic growth. They all do agree, however, that context matters and there are likely to be additional causal factors that influence how federalism will affect these outcomes. Finally, we will discuss how judicial review affects democracy. Judicial review is a very controversial issue. If there is a constitution that is rather difficult to change, then there needs to be someone whose job it is to interpret the actions and laws of government to guarantee that they are constitutional. More to the point, if the executive or legislative branches do something that somebody claims is unconstitutional, who will decide is, who is right and whether the law stays or is overturned? This is why, in many constitutions, the judiciary is charged with interpreting the Constitution and reviewing the constitutionality of the laws and actions of the government. In the U.S., this is done by the federal court system, with the Supreme Court at the very top. But when judges are asked to determine the constitutionality of a law, for example, they're being asked to interpret the Constitution to apply to the case at hand. Sometimes this is a rather easy assessment. If, for example, the state of Hawaii decided to make a law saying that any soldier stationed in Honolulu could take over and stay in any house they chose on the island, this would be a direct violation of the Third Amendment to the Constitution. However, most of the time, it's not so directly obvious that a law violates the Constitution. In these cases, the courts must interpret the meaning and or intent of the Constitution to determine if the law violates any part of it. Some argue this leads to judicial activism, or judges essentially creating legislation out of the regular order. Judges are supposed to interpret, not create laws. But some argue that judges have oftentimes overreached their roles in interpreting the Constitution to essentially create new laws where they never existed before. So what does this say about democracy? Is judicial review, in fact, anti-democratic? This is a hotly debated topic, but let's think about the pro-con debate over this judicial review. People in the pro-column say that judicial review can help to ensure rights that are not explicitly laid out in the Constitution, but that are arguably implied by the language that is included. For example, the case of Brown v. the Board of Education declared segregation of schools illegal. This is not specifically spelled out in the Constitution. It doesn't say anything about schools. But the Supreme Court determined that this was implicit in the language of the 14th Amendment, which asserts equal protection under the law for all citizens. People on the con side of this argument say that that judicial review sometimes results in judges inferring rights from the Constitution that really should be decided through public debate and the traditional lawmaking process. For example, in Brown v. Board of Education, many argued that the court overly stretched their interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and desegregation more appropriately should have been decided through the traditional lawmaking process, including public debate. Again, if we can set aside what we think was the right outcome for Brown v. Board, the question here is about how we got there. What is Was it democratic that this was decided via judicial review? Why or why not? So that's it for today. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 